Listener supported. WNYC Studios. We must and will defeat Trump, the most dangerous president in the history of this country. And he is treating our farmers and our workers like poker chips in one of his bankrupt casinos. It's one more example of a commitment not made. When that happens on the international stage, people take note. We have systemic racism that is eroding our nation from health care to the criminal justice system. People asked me in El Paso, do you think Trump um, is responsible for what happened? And I said, well, look, I mean, obviously he didn't pull the trigger, but he's certainly been tweeting out the ammunition. Hell yeah. Yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against... All those people are seeking asylum. They deserve to be heard. That's who we are. Now, did you make a mistake with those deportations? The president did the best thing that was able to be done at the How about time. you? I'm the vice president of the United States. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. The third primary debate is behind us now. All three hours of it. Thursday night, the top 10 polling Democratic candidates met in Houston, Texas, and for the first time, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders shared a single stage. We make sure that everybody gets covered by health care at the lowest possible cost. The senator on my left is not, has not indicated how she pays for it, and the senator has, in fact, come forward and said how he's going to pay for it, but he gets about halfway there. Every study done shows that Medicare for all is the most cost-effective approach. It was also the first time we really saw moderate candidates like Amy Klobuchar and Joe Biden band together and push back on the more liberal health care proposals of Senators Warren and Sanders. 149 million Americans will no longer be able to have their current insurance. I don't think that's a bold idea. I think it's a bad idea. But did anything from Thursday's debate reshape the battle for the nomination? That's the question we're tackling on the show today. We heard from a few of our listeners who were watching. Doris sums up what I hear from a lot of Democratic voters. This is Doris from South Carolina. I like a lot of what they've all said. Can't we just morph them into one Democratic mega-candidate? Bernie and Biden are older than I would like. Being president ages the heck out of people. I like Buttigieg. I don't think he can win against Trump. I'd like to see Elizabeth Warren with Cory Booker on a ticket. But honestly, I just want a candidate that can trounce Trump. So I wanted to talk this through with three really smart people who each have a unique perspective on the primary. Isaac Dover is a staff writer for The Atlantic and host of Radio Atlantic podcast. He seems to spend a lot of his time on the campaign trail. He's joining us from Houston. Hi, Isaac. Hi, how are you? Claire Malone is a senior politics writer at 538. She's a political analyst who can help us break down the data and the debate. Claire, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Amy. And Joel Payne was on the Clinton campaign in 2016. He brings the insider perspective to the discussion. Joel, welcome. Great to be with you, Amy. Isaac, I'm going to start with you. You are down there in Houston. The conventional wisdom that has emerged of the debate was that it didn't really shake up the status quo. The three current frontrunners, Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, are still the top three. Biden is the steady but still vulnerable frontrunner. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think 
one of the things we have to think about is what what we could possibly expect to happen on stage that would have radically reshaped the race mm -hmm. over the course of two and a half hours. Uh, and I, maybe that happened in the first debate in Miami when Kamala Harris uh, took on Biden, but uh, even that was momentary and nobody thought would suddenly catapult her into first place and Biden would be finished forever. Uh, and that includes people on Harris's campaign. So, yeah, it didn't re reshape the race. We shouldn't expect that any one debate is going to reshape the race. Uh, what I think did happen was that there is a uh, an elevation of the intensity of the primary and of the the candidates who are not those three trying to find their way in, having uh, lots of airtime, lots of time to talk through what it is that they uh, are proposing and getting a lot of attention that they haven't had so far in the race. Beto O'Rourke uh, and Cory Booker both had lots of time where they were getting a lot of good reaction from the crowd. We'll see whether that starts to translate, but it's not going to translate just off a debate stage. It translates from some of the media attention, but then whether they can get that movement in the, the early states. Mm -hmm. Well, Claire, that's what I wanted to pick up on with you is – you know, the theory was that these debates, this is going to be a small d democratic process, right? Here's the chance for the lesser known candidates, people who don't have really big names to come in and, and break through in these debates. They can share the stage with the well-known folks. And yet, as Isaac pointed out, nobody's really been able to use these debates to propel themselves past the front runners. We saw... Um, Kamala Harris in the very first debate get a bump, but it faded. So why is it that these debates haven't done more to elevate some candidates who have done a quite decent job? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I do think that our national political discourse is just that. It's national. And so figures who people already know and have relationships with, that would be the top three, I would say. Joe Biden, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders – American voters have relationships with them. They know what they're all about. And while there might be other, you know, char characters in this this whole uh, extremely large cast of players um, who people find interesting and attractive, Buttigieg, O'Rourke, Harris, um, there is a little bit of um, additional work that those people have to do to introduce themselves. Now, I will say that um, – at 538, we do also pay a lot of attention to how the state polls are doing and how candidates are, are doing in Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina. And, you know, I was down in South Carolina a couple weeks ago and people still say, listen, I see the polls nationally, um, but also there's a lot of organizing work to be done. Who knows? You could have a surprise candidate. Um, you know, I think uh, – Someone like Pete Buttigieg is really um, hoping that he does well in a place like Iowa, say, and perhaps he gains momentum. But we are in September and we are kind of coming down to, um, as everyone says, the race gets really serious in the fall. Um, so people are uh, running out of time a little bit if you're one of those second or third tier candidates to actually make an impression. So are you basically, though, positioning yourself for if one of those front runners stumbles, you get a second look? I certainly think that's something that a lot of candidates are hoping for. I mean, I think a lot of people are hoping that Joe Biden gets out of the race because he is he has always been the numerical frontrunner and by quite a bit. But that said, I think 
people also need to know what these candidates actually stand for. Um, and I think you saw Klobuchar and Buttigieg, for instance, coming out last night and saying, no, I'm a moderate too. And so if you like Joe Biden, but you're maybe a little bit worried about Joe Biden being older, um, hey, I'm here. Vote for me. Joel, I want to get to this question that our caller Doris raised about. She said, I just want to find candidates that can trounce Trump. And we hear this over and over again from voters, Democratic voters, who say, look, the number one issue for me is electability. Who can beat Trump? Are these debates giving Democratic voters any insight into who the best, most electable candidate is? I think it is giving voters insight into a lot of things. And I think among them are how these people would match up on a stage with Donald Trump. Um, You know, and the phenomenon that you talk about with the caller really reflects to me what I call the pundification of the electorate. You know, these pundit, these rather these voters who are more focused on, well, what are my friends and neighbors doing and how will they react to Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg and so on and so forth? Almost less than what do I feel? What who who stirs my emotions the most? And I think we've seen that on display. We saw that at the Thursday debate um, that that these candidates are really trying to demonstrate that they could be a foil for Donald Trump. Um, I think what's interesting about the Biden phenomenon, the assumption being that Joe Biden is the strongest candidate um, to go up against Donald Trump. But it's really not performative. I mean, it's really based on polling and it's based on perceptions. Um, and if you really look at it, you know, a lot of Democrats are starting to come around to the idea that maybe someone like Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, presents such a stark contrast to Donald Trump, might be that type of a candidate who could really be that electable Democrat that could expand the Democratic base and maybe even bring in some anxious Trump voters. I think voters are starting to consider that in greater numbers. Well, Joel, that's what I find really interesting about that point of maybe Biden isn't the most electable or he's not the strongest candidate here. They look to Elizabeth Warren, who has done a masterful job of avoiding getting into fights with other candidates, of being sort of pushed by other candidates. And I'm wondering that question really to me is about the debates as a stress test, right? Here's an opportunity for the candidates to have to defend their weakest points. And uh, do you think that these debates have actually done a good enough job of doing that? Like, here's where Republicans are going to come after you, candidate X. Let's hear you defend it. I think the the moderators have certainly done their level best at presenting that. Um, And, you know, voters can kind of discern whether or not they think that's the case. I think that Elizabeth Warren you know, consistently throughout has shown herself to be the most um, adept at answering questions about her weaknesses, mitigating those weaknesses, and turning them into positives or talking about anecdotes and speaking very broadly about her perspective and why she would be a good president. I think if you look at someone like Joe Biden, I don't know if people can say the same thing. And even if you go to Thursday, um, you know, Warren probably had to be very happy that a lot of the lines of attack were between Biden and Sanders. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Warren benefits when Sanders is presented as the foil to Biden and Warren is seen in a way as the compromise candidate or as the the kind of third way. In a sense, if you if you're looking at those top three, you know, no one would ever accuse Elizabeth Warren of being a moderate. But in that situation, she might seem like the third middle path. I think that's a really interesting dynamic that emerged on Thursday as well. 
Isaac, I think it was Claire saying that there was sort of a bonding of the moderates, Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Biden, pushing back on Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on health care. Do you think this is a trend that we're going to see continuing about the candidates sort of going into lanes with um, Warren and uh, Bernie taking the more liberal positions, but getting real pushback from those who aren't as far left? Well, it's the only hope that the candidates like Klobuchar would have over the course of the next debate in October. Remember, they get on stage. Everybody who's on stage and the September debate will be on stage in the October debate. But that may be the end of it. The polling thresholds are going to move up. We're expecting the donor thresholds are going to move up. Almost certainly in November, it's going to be a smaller stage. So part of this is a race for, for getting onto that stage. Isaac, you spent a lot of time with these campaigns and you're on the road talking to voters. I want to know what voters that you're talking to think about these debates and how do the campaigns themselves see them? I mean, do the campaigns see these as an opportunity or is it like, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to spend all this time off the campaign trail doing debate prep instead of, you know, honing in on organizing in the state or getting more money in my campaign coffers? That was a pretty good impression of what I hear out of the campaigns, Amy. <laughs> uh, almost to a T. Uh, one of the people working on one of the campaigns uh, as uh, the debate was ending uh, walked by me and said, only 36 days until the next one. Uh, and uh, that is that is the general feeling about it. I think with voters, there is uh, an interest in these, but... I'm not sure how many people are staying tuned in, uh, maybe officially tuned in, but maybe not even officially tuned in, uh, two and a half hours in, which is where things are. And we are expecting that likely in October we're going to go back to two nights of debates. Uh, It's just a lot to handle. We've had at this point uh, five nights of debates. Between them, uh, it's – coming on 13 hours of debates. <laughs> and that's that's a lot to process. I'm not sure that there is a whole lot that people can really get into from the substance of these. Uh, and often the substance isn't really there. Uh, but uh, even when it is, and we've had a number of relatively deep discussions about healthcare and, and how you're going to do it and what you want to do. Uh, and some of them have gone over my head. And Amy, I got to tell you, I'm paid to know what's going on. I'm paid to pay attention. I'm paid to go to Miami and then Detroit and uh, now Houston and sit there and, and try to make sense of it. I don't know how uh, people who are not <laughs> in order to make sure that their bosses uh, keep uh, signing those paychecks uh, are, are processing them. <laughs> well, Claire, is have we seen like real substantive divides on issues beyond uh, health care is obviously the issue that we see the biggest sort of rifts mm-hmm. in this uh, primary. But are there other places where you're really seeing these dividing lines? And again, for voters who are looking for, OK, substantively, here are the real dividing lines between the candidates, or here are the candidates who are taking the most significantly different positions on a certain issue. I think the clearest other dividing line is probably on immigration. Um, And I think it's no coincidence that those are the two big flashpoints. I mean, Isaac just said that who watches the full debate, and that's probably right. It's a a small number of people. But I think just sort of like how late night shows are now shown 
via YouTube clip. I think probably the two clips that will stand out, you know, throughout these these few debates we've seen are the healthcare moments and the moments on immigration. Um, you know, someone like Biden who is embracing or gingerly embracing some of the Obama administration's um, immigration policies is basically counting on the fact that uh, a lot of people are actually still um, decently moderate. They say, okay, we, we believe in immigration, but we do think that there need to be rules surrounding it. And there is some worry, I think, from strategists, if you kind of probe a little closer, that, that Democrats have gotten too much of a reputation as being far too liberal on immigration. Um, you know, someone like Barack Obama, if he were standing up there on the primary stage in 2019, I think he would be seen as a bit of a centrist on immigration. And that's a huge um, shift in the party in the last decade and something that um, a lot of voters are still kind of working things out on. So I would say healthcare and immigration are sort of the clearest places where you see these dividing lines. Although you also sort of saw people, you know, trying to figure out their stances on trade, say, last night. So those are interesting areas for for democratic exploration over the next couple of months. And Joel, you know, anytime you talk to especially the most partisan of Democrats about these debates, they fret and say, oh, my gosh, this is just hurting the Democratic Party. They're just aiming their fire at each other. They should be spending the entire time talking about Donald Trump and all the things that he's doing and not trying to, like, take shots at each other. Do these debates really ultimately end up hurting Democratic candidates, opening them to criticism and to, you know, comments that are going to end up in attack ads in the fall if they're the nominee, more so than sort of unify the Democratic Party around beating the incumbent? Amy, I think sometimes conventional wisdom would suggest that, but um, I do not believe that. And uh, frankly, I think a lot of Democrats don't buy into that. Um, I think robust primaries are good for parties. If you'll remember four years ago when the Republicans were trying to figure out who their next leader was going to be, we can quarrel with who they arrived at, at least us progressives can. But they had a robust discussion about the vision for the party and the direction forward. And it was ultimately healthy for Republicans to have that. And it is a little messy and it is a little uncomfortable. I want to also touch on really quickly one other thing you you talked about when you said the dividing line. And while the dividing line during the debate on Thursday was not on issues per se, except for health care, it was tonal. I think the central fault line in this debate has been about, do you think Donald Trump is symptomatic of a larger problem in D.C., or do you think he is the, you know, pardon the pun, uh, the virus? Is he the illness or is he the symptom? And I think you could see where those candidates fell on one side or the other. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the organizing principle for this primary right now. Do you think all the problems started the day Donald Trump was inaugurated, or do you think those problems preceded Donald Trump's existence in Washington, D.C.? That's a really good point, Joel. And I'm wondering, where do you think Democratic primary voters ultimately come out on this question, virus or symptom? I think more progressive Democratic primary voters, even folks who are kind of supporters of Bernie Sanders, would tell you that a lot of the the problems that, um, you know, uh, mess with kind of the ecosystem in Washington have been there for decades. And that Trump in some ways maybe tapped into them, albeit in a grotesque way. So um, I think the really hard-edged Democratic primary voters would probably say that those problems precede Trump and he is just the latest manifestation of a bigger problem. Joel Payne, Claire Malone, Isaac Dover, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Thank you.
When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long. And I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done. And that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright, a star of The Color Purple, honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know how to say Nevada or did you come in saying Nevada? <laughs> so I came in saying Nevada, luckily for me. Um, but it is always it is always the, the first thing that I that I tell people when they arrive here. So, yeah, we, we make sure to cover that. <laughs> That's Shelby Wiltz. She's the caucus director for the Nevada State Democratic Party. Earlier this week, I talked to Shelby about Nevada, how the caucus process works there and what it means to be lucky number three. I think we have a really exciting and unique caucus process. One of the things that we've really strived to do, and, and this is since 2008, is to really make sure that our caucus is accessible and open. Back in 2008, when we first became an early state, we created um, workplace caucus sites to ensure that hospitality workers on the Las Vegas Strip were able to participate. And what that looks like in practice is that we do have um, large precinct caucuses happening in big, well-known Las Vegas casinos for not only hospitality workers, but um, workers of any kind that work within that vicinity on caucus day. We are also really excited to, for the first time, be introducing an early vote process, which is unique to our state um, and something that um, that isn't happening in other caucus states, um, where people are going to be able to uh, vote early at locations across their county, very similarly to how they would vote in a general election. We know that about 65 to 70% of folks who, who vote in elections in Nevada vote early. And so this is going to be a really amazing option to, again, increase accessibility and is one of the things that I think um, makes our, our caucus stand apart from others. But does it work in the same way as Iowa? Like you have to, you have to be there for hours at a time and watch as people are making their declarations for support of a candidate yep. and then moving. Okay. Yep, that's right. With so we also, we maintain our, our traditional uh, caucus day process and that's what our, uh, the process you just described is exactly what will happen at our strip caucus locations as well as at all of our precinct caucus locations on February 22nd. Folks will will show up to their precinct location, they'll check in, and then uh, go to their precinct room where folks will actually physically align into groups for their preferred candidate, and then delegates will be awarded based on the size of those groups. So that is that process remains the same. It's also interesting to be the third in line and that there's, uh, you know, Iowa goes first, Often what we see is New Hampshire sort of a reaction to what happened in Iowa. Do you see that uh, Nevada is the place that is a reaction to the reaction from the first two? <laughs> How much impact did those first two have on what happens there? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think um, I think in many ways uh, Nevada is is often a tiebreaker, right? Is is the state that that can really set the tone for determining what's going to happen in the in the remainder of the process, and we've seen that happen in years past. And, you know, certainly think that will hold true in 2020. Nevada can be a make or break state um, for candidates and, and can also uh, be a tiebreaker in this process. Well, Shelby, thanks for coming on and talking us through all of this. No problem. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Shelby Wiltz is the caucus director for the Nevada State Democratic Party. Do we actually have a chance in Nevada? Nevada. 
Oh my God, I get to be president. I don't have to move. What do we do? Well, ma'am, we need to be sure that when we get on no, the ground- No, shut up, Ken. You already lost Nevada for me once. Nevada. Ben, what do we do? What uh, do we we do? need to get a hold of our people in, in Nevada. See, even the show Veep gets how seriously this whole Nevada, Nevada thing is. Right in the heart of the Golden West, home means Nevada to me. Nevada's going to recover, Nevada's going to prosper, and Nevada's going to lead. We're going to bounce back stronger than ever. I've never counted Nevada out, and I'm not about to start right now. That's the voice of Harry Reid, former U.S. senator from Nevada and a powerhouse in the Democratic Party. He's also a reason why that state is one of the four DNC-sanctioned early voting states. Rebecca Katz spent years working for Reid, and she knows a thing or two about campaigning in the Silver State. What's so interesting is at the top levels of many of the different campaigns, you have former Harry Reid staffers. And um, let me just go into a, a Harry Reid moment for a while. When you <laughs> when you come into Harry Reid's office, you don't just say, OK, I'm working for you. But, you know, I'm, I'm from Philadelphia. So great that you're from Nevada. He's like, no, you're going to learn my state. You're going to learn that it's more than just Las Vegas and you're going to learn to love it. And <laughs> you all spend time there. And each of these campaigns, they have some senior leaders um, on their team from his world. So you have... You have, you know, Bernie Sanders' campaign manager. You have Elizabeth Warren's communications director. And and what's funny is, like, none of these campaigns are, are taking their eye off Nevada. And they have been investing heavily from the very beginning. I think Warren must have over 40 people in the state right now. Obviously, Harry Reid has been, as he pointed <laughs> out, I mean, he has been the Democratic Party in the state for mm-hmm. all of these years. Right. And he fought for Nevada to become he, an early caucus. Correct. State. Is his influence, is it still as strong? Obviously, there are, there are Reed alums everywhere, which is your point, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. even though Harry Reid is no longer it's in the Senate. In us. Okay. <laughs> so you guys are all the acolytes that are, evangel- you know, you're, you're going mm-hmm. out and evangelizing. So talk to us about what it takes to win in a state that is... First of all, so transient and Mm -hmm. um, where you are asking people not just to come out and vote on a Saturday, but to actually do a caucus. That seems really hard thing to get people to do. So how how do you make the the pitch to voters like when you're out there trying to talk to people Mm -hmm. as, as voters to say you should come on out, come caucus for my candidate? How much work do you have to do to convince them? to show up in the first place and how much of it is about getting them to like your candidate? I think it's a couple of things. I think there's always the juggling of the careers and trying to figure out your Mm -hmm. job and making sure you don't take off too many hours and how that works. But there's also, especially this kind of election year, people are motivated. You know, they want their voice heard. And part of the reason the caucus is so important is that Nevada is one of the only early states that's also a battleground state in the general election. So what we're doing is we're actually getting voters engaged as early as possible in what's happening, not just for this caucus, but also for, for November of 2020. So you're, you're talking about the issues that matter and the candidates are going and they're making their case. And I think even if it's a caucus, they, they want to spend the time there. They want to make their voice heard. What do you think the national media misses about candidates in the state or issues in the state and voters in the state? I think what's so interesting about Nevada, it's the first early state that really looks like America. And that when candidates come there, 
they're going after the Latinx population. They're talking about issues that matter to that community. They're talking about, you know, Nevada is home to the fastest growing Asian American uh, population uh, in the country. And so you have candidates who are actually understanding all the different, the balances of, of people in their community in a way that I think is different from some of the other early states. Tell us like the on the ground stuff. What's the word from that state on, on, not just who has a really good operation there, but who do you think might surprise folks? Well, you know, Bernie came very close last time, like yeah. <laughs> razor thin. Yeah. So he he's not taking any chances this time. He's been there. He's been aggressively courting voters in Nevada. Elizabeth Warren has really start, like built a huge operation starting very early this year. Even Biden, when he announced in April one of his first hires, went to Nevada. Booker has a team on the ground. It's hard to say who's gonna, who's gonna um, really surprise us because Nevada is always full of surprises. So, you know, maybe it's Andrew Yang. Who knows? <laughs> but um, I mean, I think that some campaigns. I think the Buttigieg campaign was a little later to the party in terms of staffing up, and I think that matters. Like, you know, actually contacting voters matters. So, I I would, I mean, I hate to give anyone a, an edge, but I, I do think that both Sanders and Warren have been you know, working Nevada pretty hard for many months now. Rebecca Katz is a founding partner of New Deal Strategies. From Nevada, we travel next to the Northeast and the great state of New Hampshire. This state jealously guards its place as the first primary state, something that is literally written in New Hampshire law. To help guide us through what to expect from a state that's often been the site of unexpected spoilers, I checked in with Karen Hicks, and I'm the president and CEO of Civic Strategy Group. Karen is based in New Hampshire and has worked as a political strategist for Hillary Clinton and John Kerry. I started off by asking her which candidates were looking good to voters in this battleground state. Bernie Sanders did very well here against Hillary Clinton. He won a little bit more than 60 percent of the vote. And so the voters have a you know, familiarity with him. And I think that he was received very warmly at the uh, Democratic Party convention, uh, Senator Warren. Uh, we share a media market with her. And mm-hmm. so uh, voters are really familiar with her as well. Some of the other candidates have really had to do the the legwork to introduce themselves and who they are and what their vision is for the future and have been working hard at that. Senator Harris, Senator Booker, um, Mayor Pete. So what is it that they are looking for, do you think, as they're packing into these town halls or people's backyards? I think the Democrats and independents that I talk to are all unanimous in that their first job is to nominate somebody that can beat Trump. And everything else is a distant, distant second to that overarching desire to make a change in the White House. People think that this decision has never been more important or more serious. And I think one of the interesting byproducts of that is that people are really keeping their powder dry longer. They're not rushing to judgment. They're not making commitments. They're giving money to multiple candidates. They're probably spending some volunteer time and helping, you know, one or two or sometimes three candidates. And and rather than making a choice, they're organizing the candidates into tiers. It's interesting. I want to kind of get to this issue of you know, we just that Democrats are saying uh, we just want to find someone who can beat Donald Trump, right? That's what I'm looking for is the strongest candidate against Trump. But what do you think that actually means? There's a bunch of different elements to that. The answer to that question, and so one is who can raise the money 
advance the narrative and then really at a gut level who's going to look right on the stage across from him. And that last piece, I think it's always in the back of voters' mind is when they're imagining a debate and they picture Donald Trump looming over Hillary Clinton in an effort to creep her out. They're thinking, okay, who is not going to take his bait? Who's not going to sink to his level? But who's going to really be able to to stand up to him and make their case forcefully? The other thing I think that is a big debate going on among Democrats is what is that path to 270? And so is it reconstituting the Obama coalition where you have record turnout among Latinos and African-Americans and you're winning in um, in the suburbs or is it a is it a different path? And all of the candidates are being asked about what what is their path to win. And people want to see a state by state count of I'm going to be able to win in middle America and the Rust Belt versus I'm going to you know, I don't think anybody's saying seriously that they're going to put Texas in play. But, but you know, there's a lot of talk about that. And New Hampshire voters are students of elections and want to engage at that level. And I think it's a really unresolved question at this point. The other thing about New Hampshire, of course, is that it's a pretty small state. It's an overwhelmingly white state. How should voters who don't live in New Hampshire see the state. In other words, why does New Hampshire, a state that is not really reflective of either one, the overall Democratic primary elected, or two, even so many other states in this country, get to play such a big role in this? And is that a challenge when you're trying to convince Democrats that you should follow New Hampshire's lead? We've done a lot as a party to uh, make sure that average voters uh, are taken into account, the change to the caucus rules, the, the minimizing the superdelegates. And so I think that the party has changed its process in response to some of those concerns. I think that New Hampshire voters uh, are play an important but not the only role in this process. I think that with a field this big, it'll just keep getting winnowed. But I, I expect that this process will play play its way out. New Hampshire is uniquely situated both because of its size and its the history and the nomination process. But the other thing that's really important about New Hampshire is that it's not just Democrats. It's independents who can choose to take either a Republican ballot or a Democratic ballot mm-hmm. in the primary. And so our voters look like a lot of the voters that they're going to have to win over at some point. So New Hampshire was also, speaking of independence, uh, the general election in 2016 was really, really close. Hillary Clinton just narrowly carried the state. Um, do Maggie you think Hassan that, narrowly won that Senate race. That's right. That's right. So should we expect that the state is going to be as tight the um, in 2020? New Hampshire will be a battleground state. It it is the purplest of purple states. But I tell you what, uh, the voters here are fed up with Trump, and not just Democrats, but record numbers of independents. We also have some of the Republicans that are that are speaking out against him. Uh, this is a state that uh, won't be fooled twice, I think, and we will have to put in our work here. But you know, I just think there's too many of those. Uh, suburban educated women who are truly disgusted by what they see out of the White House. 
both in terms of the broken promises. You know, one of the things that Donald Trump had talked about uh, when he was up here, and I think he was really stunned to learn about the depths of the opioid epidemic facing the state and made a series of promises that he has broken. He made a series of promises about health care. And so the voters here will remember that. And then I think they're fed up with with what the drama coming out of this, given the serious nature of the problems that we have to face as a country. We just don't have time to mess around with this guy in the White House. And people here are pragmatic. And so I have a lot of confidence in the state to to you know, do the right thing when it comes to the general election, no matter who the Democratic nominee is. And I think that's the other thing that I'm hearing a lot from Democrats is that they they may have their choice, but I think that they are going to go with with who wins, who carries the day. And I, I think that people are ready to get in line. Karen Hicks, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Karen Hicks is founder and CEO of Civic Strategy Group. In what some are calling a symbolic move, the House Judiciary Committee voted this week to move forward with an impeachment inquiry. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler has been leading the charge toward impeachment, even though Speaker Nancy Pelosi doesn't agree. Look, I travel the entire country. Come with me sometime and you'll hear what the American people are saying. They understand that, that impeachment is a very divisive measure. But if we have to go there, we'll have to go there. But we can't go there unless we have the facts. Well, Speaker Pelosi's disdain for President Trump is no secret. She doesn't think that the American people are ready to watch impeachment proceedings suck up all the air in the room. And to some extent, she's right. Polls show that the majority of Americans don't support impeaching the president, though most Democrats do. But Democrats on the Judiciary Committee are working on a list of issues they want to investigate. Our work must also extend beyond the four corners of the Mueller report. We have a responsibility to consider allegations of federal election crimes, self-dealing, violations of the Constitution's Emoluments Clause, and the failure to defend our nation from current and future attacks by foreign adversaries. I asked Kyle Cheney, Congress reporter for Politico, if all this means that Democrats are actually impeaching the president. It does not. Um, It is the most significant step, but there's some debate about whether that's actually significant or not. It's significant because they have voted on something in the Judiciary Committee, the committee that traditionally oversees impeachment matters, that includes the words impeachment investigation. It's the first time any part of Congress has taken a step uh, in this presidency to do something like that. So they are in some ways trying to explain to themselves and even their own colleagues what they're doing. (laughs) What they voted on doesn't actually do all that much. It says the president's allowed to respond in writing to our evidence. We're allowed to take some evidence in secret executive sessions, things like that. They're very sort of technical process heavy things that they actually are already empowered to do. They're just stating explicitly mm. that we can do this and we're going to do this. Is this simply then a way for the Democrats who worry that there's this building frustration about not impeaching the president to look like they're moving forward. Is this just all about show? That's still where the mystery is, right? I think in some ways it's it's them keeping their options open because it could just be for show. It could be uh, we're kind of moving forward on on something that resembles impeachment, but we'll never actually get there. Or 
depending on how the facts play out, I mean, there, there's new developments every day. We learn new things about, you know, the, the president's uh, resorts and how whether he's potentially profiting off of them during his presidency. We learn new things you know, about the, the president's actions toward Congress, whether he's going to stonewall or block certain witnesses from coming forward. So they may decide later on, like, OK, we've crossed the threshold of what we need to move forward in a serious way. Um, or they might decide we never get there and just keep spinning their wheels. The Democratic leader in the House, Nancy Pelosi, though, still seems very cool, mm-hmm. if not frustrated, by this ongoing definition of what the Judiciary Committee is doing, what House Democrats are doing, what the nomenclature is about impeachment. Right. And and, and there's a sense that maybe there's some 3D chess going on, that there's an intentional obfuscation to try to make it so murky so that everybody can claim that the House is doing exactly what they want it to be doing. Um, people I talk to are not so convinced that this is really the product of some genius plan to muddy the waters on purpose that it's just a, really a competing ideas about what the House should be doing. You know, the Judiciary Committee is full of members who are much more aggressive on this. They really want to move forward. And the House leadership is not. <laughs> Why is the House leadership so reticent about moving forward on this? I think, you know, people who generally understand where Speaker Pelosi is think that she doesn't really want to go down this road, but she's reluctant to totally foreclose it. But also, it's a really important issue on the left flank of her caucus for Democratic base voters who want this option there. They think the evidence is so overwhelming already. They should have impeached him, you know, five months ago when the Mueller report came out or maybe earlier. Um, So she doesn't want to totally squelch that energy. And so that's why there's this sort of duality about her stance here. There was a sense right after the Mueller report came out that this was going to be beneficial to Nancy Pelosi's pushback on rushing into impeachment. There was no smoking gun in the Mueller report that this was going to tamp down talk of moving toward impeachment. And yet, over the last couple of months, and certainly over the summer, we saw a number of Democrats come out to say that now they are more open to or support moving on impeachment. So what happened? A couple, a couple of things. I think the the Democrats most inclined to support impeachment. They spent the first weeks after the Mueller report really fighting over this process minutia of trying to uh, get the unredacted version of the report and fighting over grand jury material and stuff that didn't really make a lot of sense to a whole lot of people. Even though they ultimately decided, like, look, the, the evidence in the obstruction side of the report in particular, it actually describes criminal activity. And though Mueller didn't make a judgment, it's, it actually can fall on Congress to do that. And then because of all this sort of fighting over minutia, they didn't even start the process of trying to bring significant witnesses forward for several weeks after the Mueller report came out. And so I think some of it was when they finally shifted toward, hey, let's let's actually have hearings on the substance of the Mueller report, what's in it, so we can tell people about this obstruction evidence and, and try to bring people like Don McGahn, the White House counsel, in. I think the members started feeling more emboldened to say, you know, there's enough here that we could call for impeachment, at least an inquiry, if not outright impeachment. Speaking of people that they're going to bring forward, Corey Lewandowski, who at one point, of course, was running the president's campaign early in the 2016 cycle, is scheduled to be in front of the Judiciary Committee on September 17th. What do you expect will come from this? Uh, it won't be pretty. Um, it he he's a little combative. Tested, uh, let's yeah, say. that's his that's his 
thing, and, and, and he has come before Congress before in a closed session of the House Intelligence Committee, and it got very heated. Uh, this is not going to be a friendly encounter. But what's notable, I mean, this is the first person that Bob Mueller interviewed with significant evidence of obstruction who provided Mueller that evidence. If they broach any substantive material, that's more than the House has gotten to date, though we know that Lewandowski has already said my job is to go in there and defend the president. He's thinking about running for Senate, so this could be his campaign launch in a certain uh, sense. Uh, So it could be very ugly. Finally, and Kyle, I don't mean to totally put you on the spot, but I am going to put you on the spot, which is, as you're talking to Democrats up on the Hill, is their expectation that before the end of 2020, there will be a vote on impeachment in the House? As things stand today, there would not be. And that's because you have the speaker leaning very hard against it in her out- outwardly. Um, you have these vulnerable freshmen who are becoming more and more frustrated and vocal about their frustration. If the House Judiciary Committee, by the end of the year, recommends articles of impeachment and leadership were to ever shift and get behind it, then the calculus changes. Kyle Cheney, thank you so much for coming in and helping decipher all of this talk for us. As best I can. I appreciate it. (laughs) Kyle Cheney is Congress reporter at Politico. That's all for us today. Our team includes producers Amber Hall, Patricia Jacob, and Jeevika Verma. Our digital editor this week is Meg Dalton. Our engineers are Debbie Daughtry, Vince Fairchild, and Jake Cowett. David Gable is our administrative assistant, and Deirdre Debke is our executive producer. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook, and you can call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>